everyone, and welcome back to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today we have our latest character analysis episode for you all. Today we are going all in on our favorite female character, only female character one of the only female characters <laughs> she's a rarity <laughs> for sure we're dissecting the character of abigail chase in today's episode so if you liked our episode a few weeks ago that was analyzing ben gates this is going to be for you also if you like diane kruger or undertones of feminism or Emily ranting about the patriarchy, this episode is going to be awesome for you. So we're very excited about that. And I know Emily is too. Oh yeah. I'm all prepared. (laughs) Um, Okay. So before we get into the meat of this discussion, we obviously have to start by sharing with you our screams from Parkington Lane this week, the evidence that we are so far into the national treasure pit of our lives that this film and its actors just pop up in random parts of our daily lives. And so Emily, I kind of feel like I have to start today because I don't know, this actually just happened to me today, but at the time of recording this, everyone, it's, it's late July, Nick Cage's newest movie just came out. It's called Pig. And I just have to say, I feel this weird pressure to see the movie. Wait, are you gonna see it? I, I mean, maybe. I, I I was thinking of going tonight, actually, like when we're done recording. Wait, what? No, wait. I was gonna do the same thing. Are you serious? I mean, <laughs> yeah. are we like yeah. telepathically connected on Nick Cage now? <laughs> yeah, I was just like, I have nothing to do tonight. You know, it would be perfect. Let's go see Pig. Okay, but you know what's even crazier though is I am like ninety-five percent sure I'm gonna hate it. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I I not, know not selling it well. No, I, I but here's the thing, I know what kind of movies I like and they are not artsy mm. and they are not dark and they are not sad and I am pretty sure this movie is all of those things. Mm. See, I like trauma. So yeah. I feel like I'll like it. You probably will. <laughs> I mean, but he I don't know. There are two things really getting me through that door tonight if if I end up going. One is the fact that it's only an hour and a half and there is nothing Mm. I hate more than long movies. And number two, I would literally kill for movie theater popcorn. (laughs) Like... Like, honestly, I'm craving it so bad. But here's the thing. I mean, most people listening are probably like, okay, if you're that confident, you're going to hate it. Why do you want to go see it? And my answer is, why indeed? I feel pressure from this real and or virtual community that we have such that I feel like if I don't see it, I am failing to do some like important market research. I feel like I need to like lean into this personality that we've cultivated here. And sometimes I'm not sure if it's a fake personality or if it's my real one. Are you judging me right now? I'm not judging you. I just think if you don't want to see the movie, then don't see it. I'm going to see the movie. I think that's where we've landed here. But wait, so 
So did we just have a joint scream? I think we did. <laughs> well, that is, dare I say, the loudest scream we could have possibly <laughs> had. <laughs> okay. Well, that was an adventure. So, hey, everyone, if you all have gone and seen Pig or if this conversation has, you know, made you feel like you need to, please let us know. And hey, let us know while you're at it whether or not you like Nick Cage's newest film. And you're going to do that on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are also available for your listening ears on Spotify, iTunes, and yes, we have you covered on the SoundCloud, the cloud of sound. We are there. Uh, go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms. Let us know you guys are listening. Tell us that you like hearing us talk about these things. As Aubrey said, tell us your thoughts on Pig, because after this recording, the, the time of this recording, we will both have seen it. Um, and while I'm at it, I should mention that we do have a new merch store, which is on Public, And you're going to want to go ahead and get some treasure protector, as Aubrey is currently wearing and your other National Treasure Hunt merchandise. You can get notebooks, you can get stickers, you can get magnets, you can get shirts, you can get just about anything your National Treasure Hunting Heart desires. So go ahead and check us out there. The link is in our link tree on our bio on Twitter. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. We can be twinning, um, so do that. Anyway, Let's get down to business here, because if there's anything I learned from this intro, it's that we both have a movie to catch, so we have to peace out soon. Um, (laughs) But that doesn't mean we're going to rush this, because if there was ever a character that needed a character analysis conducted by Emily and myself, I think it's Abigail Chase. So as you might be familiar, we are going to replicate the format of our Ben Gates character analysis here today. That means we're starting with some basic background on Abigail. Then we are doing our fun riff on an analysis, which is our adjective game. Then Emily is going to come in with her patriarchy corner. And I've got to say, I am so excited for that today. And then finally, I'll finish us with our actor comparison. And that's what we have in store. So let's dive right into this and start with our overview of Abigail Chase's backstory. Um, spoiler alert, this section is going to be super short because we don't know much about her, Em. I thought we didn't know much about Ben Gates' backstory, but upon uh, thinking about this, I realized that we know even less about Abigail. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I will say that when I sat down and thought really hard about her, I knew more than I thought from like teeny tiny context clues or comments here and there, but it's not substantial at all. You know, as we mentioned at the top, Abigail Chase is played by Diane Kruger. We will come back to that at the end when we compare Abigail and Diane. But the first point I should mention here about Abigail is that her age in the film is never clarified. Uh, Much like the last time when we spoke about 
Ben Gates, though, we can take a look at the age of the actress when she played this role and see how that sort of plays out in our brains. So, Emily, it turns out that when National Treasure came out in 2004, Diane Kruger was, get this, 28 years old. What? So she was literally basically how old we are now. And... What? I would just like to say that I literally did the math on that three times on the little calculator on my phone when I was writing our show notes because I was so convinced it was wrong. Are you sure it's right? I am positive she was born in 1976 and it came out in 2004. So yeah, mind blowing. So with that said, I think we both agree that she does not come off as 28 no she comes off as way more mature than that way more mature and this is also going to play in in just a second into her job and her career but yeah I don't want to jump ahead too much um I do want to finish commenting on how little sense this makes um so yeah I would have guessed that she was probably based on her appearance and maturity not on her job that she was early 30s what would you say yeah I was gonna say early to mid 30s yeah, it's one of those things where I realized that last week we said Ben seemed mid-30s. Um, she definitely looks younger than Ben, in my she opinion. Does. Yeah, and so she then, if Ben is mid-30s and she has to be early 30s, or maybe Ben's actually late 30s, and I just have no concept of how old people look, which is probably true. <laughs> so, <laughs> now that we've ruminated on the age a little bit, Um, We do know from the film that Abigail was born in Germany. Uh, This was based on a conversation with Ben early on in their relationship when he mistakes her Saxony-German accent for Pennsylvania Dutch. So she Mm -hmm. clarifies that for him. Um, She also, I don't know if people realize this, when she is initially like sort of kidnapped by Ben and Riley, she swears in German. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't realize that until I started studying, like, the script for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we also know that, you know, she was born in Germany. She obviously lives in America. We also know that she has become a U.S. citizen because of Riley's insensitive comment early on when he says, oh, you, you know, you work at the archives and you're not even an American. Ugh, ugh. Sorry, gross. Um, Bad Riley. Bad Riley. Um, And she clarifies to him, I am an American. I just wasn't born here. So that's that's her citizenship status. Uh, We also know that Abigail has a doctoral degree and she is an archivist by profession. Now, I this is where I really started questioning her age in reflection of her career and profession as well as the status she seems to have at the National Archives. So I decided to do a little digging on what sort of educational background and work experience you need to have to be an archivist. Mm -hmm. And so I found out, Emily, that archivists typically require a master's degree in archival studies or a related you know, field. 
And to be a certified archivist, you also need one year of work experience and you have to pass a written exam. And then to remain certified, you must kind of recertify every five years. Um, so with that said, for a while now, we have assumed that she is either like the head archivist or at least pretty high up at mm -hmm. the National Archives. And I think that's a really fair assumption. It comes from the fact that, you know, when Ben is making this important meeting, it is with her. You know, she has an assistant. Mm -hmm. um, she clearly has decision-making authority with respect to the declaration because she's the one that says like, oh, let's do tests on it. She has access to the preservation room as opposed to her, I guess, ex-boyfriend slash colleague Stan who accompanies her to the preservation room, but he doesn't have access. Like he can't use the system, right? Mm -hmm. And of course she also has a doctoral degree, which if you're, that's not required for this job, one would, you know, added to this list of other factors, suspect that she's pretty high up. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So if you agree with me that that makes sense, then that is totally unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, how old were you when you got your PhD, Aubrey? I was 25, but I wasn't like the archivist of the United States. True. <laughs> <laughs> or even remotely around that level if she's not the archivist, you know? Mm -hmm. So just had to throw that out there. I was a little proud of my sleuthing. So, you know, bragging. Um, what else do we know? Well, it turns out we don't know much else. This is almost the limit of our knowledge. You know, we know she has a clear interest in American history as evidenced by her collection of George Washington's campaign buttons. Um, and we only really know a little bit about her romantic history to round things out. So maybe that's like a little preview of her patriarchy corner. I don't know. We know that she had some relationship with this Stan guy. Then of course there's Ben. Then of course there is um, Phil Dunphy, AKA Connor. And then, you know- Is that ben, his name? <laughs> his name is Connor <laughs> in this. But, you know, we all call him Phil Dunphy here. And then, of course, there's also the fun little pretty pointless reference um, when she and Ben are in the Urban Outfitters and he asks her, have you ever told more than one someone I love you? And she says, yes. So she's had relationships. Cool. None of your business, Ben. Like, yeah. But honestly, I knowing how little now that we understand about her, I almost wish she had elaborated because... Maybe that would have given us literally anything else about her past, you know? True. Um, and I just have to end this background segment because, again, that's literally all we know with another fun little discovery that I made while researching this section. Someone made her a LinkedIn profile. What? Yeah, and I don't mean like Diane Kruger. I mean the character of Abigail Chase. Somebody's as obsessed as we are? No, it's crazy. She doesn't have any connections, although I did kind of want to see what would happen if I added her. Um, but we'll we'll share the LinkedIn on our socials just because it's hilarious to me. It's literally a picture of like her from the gala scene at, in the first movie. And it, you know how when you put in, well, you don't have a LinkedIn, I don't think, but um, you, there's a section where you put in where you work and it like links to that company or organization's page. Like it's linked to the National Archives page. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> so a part of me really wants to believe that someone from the National Archives made this as like a promotional stunt. I like that. So let's pretend that that's what happened. Perfect. You got it. Let's, you heard it here first, folks. The archives made Abigail a LinkedIn profile. Anyway, that is our background summary. Now we're all on the same page with everything that we know about Abigail. And we can use that background as well as the two films that we have her in to characterize her and talk a little bit about how the actions that she takes, the things that she says, etc., really define her as a character, as a person. So for this part of the episode, as you all know, Emily and I will be playing our little adjective analysis game where we go back and forth, basically saying how we see Abigail and justifying that based on her appearance in these films. And we end each of our adjectives by surmising where this character trait may have come from in our character that we know just about nothing about. So are you ready, Emily? Are you ready for our adjective analysis? I'm ready. What is your first adjective, Aubrey? Okay, my first adjective is authoritative. Any initial thoughts on that? Seems a little harsh, but okay. So this is, I think, a bit of a reflection of how she's portrayed. Um, because I, I fear that people see her as cold or stoic. Um, and I think authoritative is one step away from that because I don't necessarily see that as being a bad thing but I see how people could hear authoritative and be like oh she's cold or something Mm -hmm. that's not what I mean here for as seeped in the patriarchy as you Emily have pointed out this movie franchise can be we really never get the impression that Abigail is out of place in her career or her knowledge. And we also never really see her questioned in terms of her authority, which I think is actually a really positive thing if you Mm -hmm. don't then interpret that as, again, being cold or stoic. Mm -hmm. Um, Her authority is really rooted or, or it shows in a variety of scenes. So for example, as we've already referenced, she has the power to make really, really important decisions at the archives. So when Riley sets off the censor in the declaration case, she is the one that decides what happens next. And she is not afraid to make that decision. She doesn't hesitate. You know, she says what she says and that's what happens. Um, We also see others being deferential to her authority. Right. So we see her interact with an assistant who is a female who is around her same age. We see her interact with uh, the person who's keeping the attendee list at the gala and demanding information when she needs it and she gets that information. Mm-hmm. We even see, again, this Stan character. I think this is the most we've ever talked about Stan in, you know, a, two and a half seasons of our show. But when he accompanies her to the preservation room to examine the declaration after the sensor goes off, she's the one, again, signing into the security systems. And he sort of backs away and like looks to the side so he can't see her type, her password, et cetera. And these are just like little, you know, body language cues Mm -hmm. that really tell me that people respect her authority. Do you agree with that? I do. Now that you mention it, I can see what you're talking about. Okay. Well, I'm going to take it one step further because it's not just 
that she's authoritative in her place of work, which I do admittedly really like to see. It also is apparent to me once she has actually joined Ben and Riley on this hunt, right? She really takes command of the process of like unveiling the cipher on the back of the declaration. Remember, you know, someone trained in the handling of historical documents is going to do it, right? That's literally Mm -hmm. a line that she says when Ben is going to go manhandle the declaration with lemons and heat. And she's like, well, I'm going to take charge here. This is my role. And Ben defers, right? Without Mm -hmm. a second thought. Um, Another example here later on, she basically collabs with Ian to get Ben away from the FBI, right? Which number one, very gutsy and props to you. Um, But number two, we get another little subtle hint here in a quote from Shaw once Shaw kind of rescues Ben out of the Hudson and you know he Ben's like what's going on here someone tell me what's going on and Shaw says ask your girlfriend she's the one calling all the shots now Mm. you you know so these are like little things that unless you put them together you don't really see the significance but I think it really says a lot about who she is I mean even in National Treasure 2 Abigail is the one the only one who can stop Patrick and Emily from fighting oh yeah so they they meet in uh emily's office at the university all the whole crew basically the whole protagonist crew is together and um professor helen mirren emily and patrick start arguing and you see ben try to interject and they just keep going it's abigail who says can we please focus on what's on the page and that's when they stop and you know, Helen Mirren starts interpreting. Mm, and Aubrey. Yeah, right? Are you proud of me or are you proud of me? I'm so proud. Thank you. But again, um, I, I got to say, I do worry that some people see bits of this authoritativeness as her being cold, which the only thing I can say to that is seeing a woman especially a fairly young and attractive woman in this sort of role, this authoritative role as cold, I really think is a patriarchal thing. Don't you, you know, Mm -hmm. we're taught when you see that in a movie or in a TV show, like that's a character that, you know, no one wants to date or, you know, no one wants to cross or doesn't get, it's not, she's not part of the group, the crew. Right. Yeah. So, I really reject anyone who calls her cold for that reason. But then on top of it, I also have to say, I really like how this movie in particular balks at that. She's not ostracized from the group. She's a core part of the group and the group respects her for it, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. And we don't see a lot of. So it's true. I will wrap up my first adjective here by again answering the question where do i think this authoritative nature comes from in abigail which let's just you know address the elephant in the room so we don't have to keep saying this for every adjective we don't know anything about her or her backstory Mm -hmm. so this is very conjecture based i like that you say so we don't have to keep addressing it in every adjective (laughs) but you know that i'm gonna address it in every adjective well in theory we don't have to (laughs) And I'm going to say here that I'm 
going to guess that this authoritative trait comes from Abigail being a woman in a scientific or science adjacent field and being at a high level in that field. Because I think you and I both know, Emily, based on being women scientists ourselves, that if you don't have confidence in yourself as a woman in one of these sorts of professions, you are not going to make it as far as Abigail has made it in her career. That's very true. And so that is, you know, based a little bit on personal experience and the little we know about her, that's sort of where I'm, I'm, you know, coming at this from. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's it. That's all I have for my first adjective. So Emily, show me up. What's your first? I don't know if this is showing you up, uh, because (laughs) it's like pretty obvious, but my adjective is intelligent. (laughs) Okay. I definitely don't disagree. (laughs) Like I said, it's pretty obvious, but I felt that it needed to be touched upon. Okay. Um, I mean, for a lot of the points you mentioned, and I feel like this is going to be a little bit of a theme when it comes to this episode, is that like a lot of the stuff that you say, I pick a different adjective, but use a lot of the same evidence that you've used because we know so little about her character. Oh my gosh. I feel like that's cheating, but I'll let it slide. (laughs) So she's intelligent, right? She's the top of her field. She has a PhD. And like, as you mentioned, and she seems to have this decision-making authority at her job at the archive. She's like top there. So it's pretty obvious you have to be smart to get there. She has like this extra knowledge, it feels like, of, and collection of the George Washington campaign buttons, which to me speaks to a deeper intellectual curiosity that she has about history. Oh, okay. Though like I said in the previous character analysis, we don't know much about her. So we don't know what she has her doctorate in. So for all we know, she could have gotten her PhD on this topic exactly. And that's why she's so invested in it. Like it's very possible. Oh, like she did it in history or like, like literally American. Like her thesis was about like the George Washington's campaign. Mm -hmm. It's true. Could be. Um, but even if it is, I mean, it's still cool, but if it's not, then it shows that extra intellectual curiosity about this, like other topic, aside from what she got her PhD in directly. And we've talked about this before, but she's very much kind of on par with Ben in terms of figuring out clues, right? We talk about this a lot when we're talking about Riley and how he's kind of like left out a bit. But Abigail and Ben are like on the same page and she figures out like just as many parts of clues as he figures out, which speaks to me about her being a very intelligent person. I'll add another example from the second movie where, you know, when the um, argument is happening on the Buckingham Palace steps, she kind of figures it out. She figures out based on like observational skills and context clues that this is like an act this is a scene that she's now a part of and she like plays along with it because imagine what happens if she doesn't Mm. huge problem right but she figures it out and i would say that takes um a certain amount of intelligence and especially 
ability to observe, which is, I think, associated with intelligence. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Thank you for helping buttress my case here. <laughs> um, so like I said, the, mine are relatively short, I feel like in comparison to yours, because I'm like, like I said, I'm using a lot of the same examples that you're using and I don't want to like go into them too much because like we've just discussed them but in wrapping up this intelligent adjective when we think about kind of where it comes from I want to say that it's probably somewhat innate uh there's like at a certain point there's nothing you can do about intelligence like that's just kind of what it is um, but like, obviously there's, there's some amount of effort to it as well. Right. She obviously put in the effort over the course of her life to get her PhD. She, that means she had to put an effort throughout all of her elementary and high school years, as well as her college. And then to go on and get the PhD itself, she had to work really hard at it. So there has to be some amount of intelligence that goes into that process as well. I agree. Awesome. So what do you have next? Okay, so much like our last character analysis episode, my second adjective is sort of a twofer. Cheating. It's not cheating. It's the fact that they're very related and they cannot be. You basically took an adjective away from me. Oh, like you were going to pick any of these. I was. Are you serious? Which one? Yeah, I was going to say that she was really invested. Oh, okay. Well, spoiler alert. My twofer is curious slash invested. And you know what I say to that, Emily? Do your show notes sooner. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sorry. I don't know why I'm feeling passive aggressive today, but I'm here for it. Um, Okay. So I feel like these are very related uh, and and I'll tell you why. To start, I feel like curiosity as a characteristic of Abigail is really just all over the place throughout the franchise, right? She exhibits curiosity literally as soon as Ben and Riley come to her with this insane proposition about there being a map on the back of the declaration. And again, this is very based on... um, Things like tone of voice, body language, etc. You know, based on those tiny clues like her tone of voice, you can even tell that she half believes them or at least wants to believe them, right? Think of the way she, the end of that conversation goes. You know, Ben and Riley, they just had this humorous exchange, did Bigfoot take it? And Ben you know, realizes he's hit a brick wall and he just says, it's nice meeting you. And you see her look out of the corner of her eye and I I can't do the accent, but I'll try to replicate. I'm not going to try. If you, if you'd like Emily, I would invite you to try, but what I really want to, what I really want to try to replicate here is her tone of voice. And, you know, looking out of the corner of her eye, she says, nice meeting you too. Okay. So it's little things like that, that show you from the get-go she's intrigued. Okay. Mm -hmm. She also can't leave well enough alone when Ben admittedly like taunts her at the gala in the first film. So we've talked a lot before in our last character analysis about how Ben is so confident that he basically tips her off that he's going to steal the declaration. He totally doesn't need to do that. And admittedly, she also doesn't need to start following him either, right? True. There is security. There are, you know, 
guards and the declaration is protected and she is a guest at this party that she's sort of throwing you know she's not in charge of the guest list or anything she can let it go and just be like that was weird but she doesn't you know she starts Mm -hmm. following up on how it is that he's in the gala you know did he have a ticket and what is he up to and so you see of course this sequence particularly when ben is leaving the building with the declaration of her like following him around and being like a couple steps behind him at any point in time and so what i would say at this point her curiosity is related to her investment in her career and her job right because she thinks there's something fishy going on here related to her place of work and she's investigating it she's curious Mm -hmm. so So that's where I start here. I will argue that her curiosity is going to start to change. Now, as soon as Ben and Riley save her when she's, um, you know, trying to, she thinks she has taken the declaration back from Ben and then Ian kind of collects her into the food truck. (laughs) Collects, that's a nice way to put it. (laughs) Kidnaps, whatever. as soon as Ben and Riley then like rescue her and prove to her that they have the declaration, uh, she has the opportunity to leave. They literally say like, go run along. And it's uh-huh. very, you know, we don't like the tone of that, but she can, she can leave, but she sticks around and even says the classic line, you know, if you wanted to get rid of me, you shouldn't have told me where you were going. Mm. And this is when her investment, this is when the curiosity and investment like really start to meld here. Her in, the curiosity that was reflected in the investment in her job, that investment in her job is starting to waver. Mm. Okay. Yeah, we have noted this before too. She seems a little, mm-hmm. a little like not caring so much about her job at certain points. Yes. And that's going to come up, I think, in my third piece my third adjective but it's true there's a clear turning point in her character and her personality and I think that starts around the time when she is seeing the cipher on the back of the declaration of independence that really seals the deal for her her curiosity is now full investment in the treasure hunt Mm -hmm. and we see this pop up again in national treasure too she and ben remember are not even on speaking terms at the beginning of book of secrets yet she literally flies from washington dc to england to help with whatever task ben has up his sleeve at buckingham palace she literally doesn't know what she's doing there she just shows up so that she can help because of her curiosity of what's going on and her investment in the hunt so where do i think this comes from in her character i would say that she clearly already has somewhat of a treasure hunter's mentality which i mean think about it again from the perspective of the campaign buttons right ben had a really nice line where he said you know, you had to hunt for all of that history to collect those buttons. Mm. And I think that in itself is a little bit of a treasure hunt. It's like a very tame version for her. It's like a collector mentality, a collector tendency, where you clearly already have some curiosity, some passion about something. And so you seek it out and you accomplish your task. 
And so I think this is just like one aggressive step further, right? From uh, completing a collection of historical artifacts to literally finding the biggest artifact of them all. Mm. That it's just, again, maybe it's, it's kind of innate, but her, the very little that we know about her carrying through and saying, okay, these are like self-consistent, these traits, I think anyway. Wow. You've done it again, Aubrey. Ah, thank you. And I'm sorry to have stolen an adjective from you, but I'm not. Um, so, Emily, what is your second adjective? So my second adjective is caring. I like that as a counter to the authoritative, specifically because people perceive it as cold. So this is just like turning that on its head. So good on you. Yeah. And I wanted, I wanted to note from the beginning that this isn't me leaning into the patriarchy and giving some kind of example of like the woman is the caring one in the situation. Like it's, it's just something that we see in her. I, I don't think it's necessarily patriarchal to point out. And I'm really in- interested in hearing sort of the justification for this one, because I think it could also be used to refute people who think she's this, you know, heartless or cold or stoic person um also because we don't really see her in very romantic or familial situations very much so tell me tell me where this caring trait is is manifesting for you yeah so that's a great point we don't see her in these romantic or familial kind of situations very often but i have pointed out the times when we do as proof of this concept so in the very first movie kind of from the beginning you can see that she genuinely cares about ben's dad right she gets concerned when he's being like held hostage kind of by ian yeah right like she's clearly a little not distraught by it but she's like she's aware that it's happening and is like we should fix the situation and she's clearly still in touch with him in the second movie because if you'll remember when ben calls abigail he uses his dad's phone to call abigail so his dad's contact information comes up on her phone meaning that she has some kind of relationship with him and is still somewhat in touch with him. Yeah, even more so, the fact that she took the call was like a little comedic point, right? Um, She took the call because she saw it was coming from Ben's dad, not from Ben. Yeah, exactly. Even though she probably knew it was coming from Ben. I mean, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so that's her with her dad or with uh, Ben's dad. Now, Abigail tries to give Riley a lot of times often space to have his input, or at least more space than Ben gives him at times. So the scene that I'm coming, that I always come back to is the, the clothing store scene at the Urban Outfitters when Riley's trying to make his point about Independence Hall and the clocks and daylight savings time. And Ben is just kind of going on and on. And Abigail's getting a little into it too. Like the two of them are having fun with this banter going back and forth, trying to figure out what this means. But at a certain point, Riley, she like lets Riley have a say a little more than Ben does. 
It's okay. very subtle. Okay. Do you think it's, it, is it also like a body language or tonal thing? Yes. Yes. I definitely mm. do. It's like, it's like a sense. It's a feeling I get about the scene. Okay. Um, she's, so I guess she's kind of more welcoming in, in that scenario, welcoming of his input. Yes, very much so. Okay. And uh, you've pointed this out before about her working with Ian. Uh, but she obviously cares enough about Ben to work with Ian, mm. who is a criminal. Yeah. And she works for the government. Mm-hmm. That's true. So she has some level of caring about Ben that kind of extends beyond just like friendship. That's definitely true. And you know what? I think this pops up. Um this dynamic with Ben and this caring mentality pops up again near the end of the second film, to be honest with you, especially when they are um, in the flooding room of Cibola and they have to, you know, hold the door open. And one of, to me, the most poignant interactions in this entire franchise is when Ben is saying, because Mitch is going to, you know, kill Abigail if he doesn't agree, but Ben says, look, I'll stay. I'm staying. I will be the one left behind. And Ben's parents are obviously like, no, no. And then, you know, Ben calls Abigail over and they have this moment when they're, when they look at each other and there's just like this unspoken understanding of like, you, you know, he says, you make my parents leave. And she Mm -hmm. just stares at him and you can see the concern, but you can also see her trying to figure out how to make this work for the most people possible, you know, to Mm -hmm. make this, to make them, make it right because they're in a really dangerous situation and then she does you know very gently um but also forcefully authoritatively if if i may (laughs) you know have have ben's parents leave leave. you know but there's an element of like he's trying to save our lives please just please go like you know Mm -hmm. you could tell she's it's hurting her to do this which i think is indicative of her caring about ben but she's also clearly understanding of the position that ben's parents are in and probably feels really bad about what she's doing yeah and i think that's i i love that you kind of brought it back together with the authoritative (laughs) part of things a little bit as well because I do think the two go more hand in hand than we necessarily would think initially Mm, yeah so where does it come from well I have no idea (laughs) she could have had a really good childhood growing up which made her become a more caring person she could have had a really terrible childhood growing up which made her want to do the complete opposite she might just be a good person any of these are possible any of these are possible if only we knew um okay i believe it i believe it thanks em um i think we each have one adjective left okay you ready to get through the third adjective so we can get to my wonderful patriarchy corner i am so my final adjective here, which I didn't really order these in any particular order. I do like that this one fell third though for me, and that is fearless. Mm. So like you, I'm going to keep this brief because I think a lot of the points relate to things we've already talked about today. But once again, we see this characteristic immediately 
when she refuses to hand the declaration over to Ian when he kidnaps her in, again, the back of the food truck. She will quite literally swing from a moving vehicle before giving it to him, which is clearly fearless. And I think it's also a testament to that investedness, that investment that we were talking about earlier. But if that's not fearless, I don't know what is. You know, there's also the fact that she's like being shot at when she's now in Ben's vehicle. It's like a whole thing. Um, So that's like the physical fearlessness. She's literally like willing to put her body on the line for something that she feels to be important. But from a more, um, it's the opposite of physical standpoint. (laughs) Emotional? No, it's not that either. From From the perspective, a little less, more intangible standpoint hey, there you go there's a word um she like doesn't exhibit a lot of fear at the fact that she could lose her job which she's clearly as we've discussed probably worked very hard to get to right we actually see her say right before she squeezes the lemon juice onto the back of the declaration i'm so getting fired for this and then she does it anyway okay and this is also where the curiosity is playing a role, right? The curiosity overshadows anything else happening in this moment. And so as a result, she's not afraid that she's going to lose her job over this. You know, it's that important to her to be a part of this historical moment. She doesn't even know it yet, but it's going to be a historical moment. Um, Once again, I'm going to draw on the fact that she collaborates with Ian when she asks Riley how they can get in touch when Ben has been um, taken into custody by the FBI and she knows they need to get Ben out of FBI custody and she is unafraid. She is fearless. She is unafraid to work with a criminal as a means to the end that she sees as necessary. And then just kind of um, coming full circle, we see yet another example at the end of the first film related to um, this physical fearlessness. She is willing to sacrifice herself, her body, her life for the Declaration of Independence when that whole like Parkington Lane contraption is collapsing. Oh, good point. And I see this as being very parallel to the beginning of the film when she's swinging from the food truck also to save the Declaration. This is a parallel that I actually never thought about before until putting this little piece together yeah which which now I really enjoy um but it's it's fearlessness once again and I'm sure I could bring up other examples from the second film but I really don't think I have to because to me it's it's really clear and so of course to answer the ultimate question of where I think it comes from this is another place where I don't know maybe taking stabs in the dark um and there are plenty of places where this could come from you know maybe the fact that she immigrated to this country as a child maybe this desire because of her um her her immigrant status of really wanting to take advantage of all of the opportunities that she had when she came to this country and that therefore just learning to go after things without any sort of regard for her own personal danger that's as creative as I can get here (laughs) without more background info I really can't make any better guesses and that's probably a huge shot in the dark as well but it could also be innate like you said it could also be you know was bullied as a child and therefore she had to stand up for herself and become like I don't know um 
but yeah, I, I really think that fearlessness defines her as a character like bar none. Okay. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Does it, does it jive with the, the feminism that you want to inject into this, this movie? It does. Yay. It's okay. Perfect. Well, Emily, that leaves us with your final adjective today. What do you have? My final adjective is level-headed. Oh, okay. Pray tell. So I just want to start by saying that this is a really nice change of pace for a female character in these types of action and adventure movies. Uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, you would see the female uh, protagonist being like more afraid, fearlessness, um, <laughs> more kind of jarred when things go wrong, a little more damsel in distress. I'm thinking like particularly about like Indiana Jones and those kinds of those kinds yeah. of movies. Yes, and people compare her to, as you've mentioned in our Indiana Jones episode, to Marion. Is it was that her name? Yeah. Right, and that's like a really unfair comparison. Yeah, I mean, in some senses, I can see where they're coming from, but like, she is a little too damsel in distress, I think, for that level of comparison with Abigail. So, like, something I like to point out is that in Buckingham Palace, right, when Ben starts on his little, like, rampage where he's going on, he's, he's going off, basically, Abigail catches on and she starts playing along. Mm hmm And so this is instead of her immediate reaction being like to be annoyed by him or being purely to like argue back with absolutely no like deeper motivation behind it. Or embarrassed, which I could see being a common like like woman's trope reaction in this scenario. Yes, exactly. And so the fact that she has kind of the wherewithal about her to kind of like see the situation from like an outside perspective almost like a saw like taking aside the part of like their relationship that he's arguing about and you know she she injects a little bit of it in there and she does admit that at the end of the fight like they talk about like when did you realize I wasn't playing along or I was playing along when did you realize that like some of what I was saying was true and so she does inject a little bit in there, but she can almost see it from this outside perspective and then make a conscious decision about the way that she's going to handle the situation, which I think is a very kind of level-headed move. Another thing, like you've, and you've mentioned this in your previous adjectives, when she's getting shot at, right? She holds on to that poster too. Yeah. She does not let go. If you were to see a typical female in one of these movies, what you would expect to see is her to be like super flustered and possibly drop the poster tube and all that kind of stuff. That's not at all what she sees. She knows in the situation she needs to hold on to what she thinks is the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And though she arguably should, she doesn't just kick Ben out when he breaks into her house in the second movie (laughs) for what we can clearly see is not the first time that this has happened. Well, I mean, I think this is, no, you're right. It's a really good example of her being able, she's not, she's not reactive and she's not reflexive. Yes. She takes the time to see a situation. And instead of just 
saying or doing the first possible reaction she assesses it like I, I really like how you said like from an outside perspective and then reacts much more reasonably <laughs> than we would than I know I would in most of these situations <laughs> yeah exactly that's what I was kind of thinking of too I was like trying to put myself in the situation and being like mm, I don't think I would have been that <laughs> that calm about things mm -hmm. so good on her and I just want to point out that that being said, she pushes when it's necessary, right? Abigail knows when to challenge Ben and stand up for herself. So like, for example, whenever she wants to go along with the crew, whether it be in the first movie or in the second movie, she isn't so... I feel like people can see level-headed and think like passive almost mm. but she's not passive she is like all the other adjectives that we've used to describe her she, she she's a very active person but i think you said it so well she's not reactionary mm -hmm. but she clearly is thinking things through and knows when to hold her ground and when to kind of give in a little bit which i think is a great character trait i agree so so where do you think this comes from i have some suspicions actually and i think it relates a little bit to that authoritative uh, adjective earlier <laughs> i think you're right i think honestly it probably comes from having worked in a male-dominated field and needing to not lose her temper because god forbid a woman does that hashtag patriarchy right mm -hmm. as a woman you're expected to kind of keep your cool in situations and not emotionally react to things in a way different than men are necessarily expected to and i think a lot of that a lot of this level-headedness probably comes from her having dealt with situations like this where she's had to be the one to keep a level head yeah i i think you're probably really correct there um which anyway. also makes this um character trait like oddly appropriate for her you know um you know when we talk about the you know educational pedigree of ben gates and leading to everything he does here you know the career pedigree of abigail seems to play albeit more subtly um a strong role in some of these again tones or you know small behavioral traits that we see from abigail that really speak volumes since we since she's not the main character and we don't mm -hmm. get as much of an overt like oh ben's a scuba diver so he jumps into the hudson river you know we're not going to get that with abigail because she's not the main character but i think this is really self-consistent and um and i like this for her mm -hmm. I like this journey for her. Anyway, <laughs> that wraps up our adjective analysis, which brings us to my favorite part. Well, I don't know, maybe depending on the day, it's either my favorite or my second favorite part of these episodes. The other contender is, of course, my actor analysis that follows this up. But this brings us, nonetheless, to Emily's patriarchy corner. Emily, there are high hopes here. I have big expectations. Lay it on us. Thank you. So I'd like to start by welcoming you all to my corner um, and pointing out that that last adjective that I used, I feel like segues us very nicely into this patriarchy corner. 
I think that Abigail is actually set up in a really nice way, as I've mentioned, so as to not completely fall victim to the patriarchy. Even though she's like the only female character. Yes, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. As mentioned, she stands up for herself and she's level-headed in an intense situation. So in a heavy-handed patriarchal perspective, which I kind of got into this a little bit in the last adjective too, you would have her flailing and you would have Ben saving her all the time. Right. Now it should be noted that Ben saving her when it does happens always comes along with him saving something else as well. So it makes the onus less on him saving the woman and more on him fixing the situation. So when both Riley and Abigail get like kidnapped by Ian, right? He's not only saving Abigail, he's also saving Riley. And he's also getting the other like component he's saving his dad like there's there's a lot involved in that situation that's not just about him saving abigail as the woman in the film which i really like mm-hmm. um i want to point out it's not great that one of the main facts that we do know about her knowing so little about her is her romantic history agreed though i will point out that it's a nice change of pace to see that she's willing to move on from a romantic relationship in the second movie, which she does by going on this date with Phil Dunphy, mm-hmm. whose name is apparently Connor, <laughs> as opposed to Ben, who seems to still be more like emotionally attached to her That's during this process. True. I never thought of that before. Do you think that's one of the reasons, again, a patriarchal reason, but do you think that's another one of the reasons that people see her as cold? It's possible. That wouldn't surprise me at all, unfortunately. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Big stuff. (laughs) So, you know, with all this said about how nice it is that she's not tied up in the traditional patriarchal or patriarchy as we have come to know and hate, It is unfortunate that she is only one of two main women when we consider the second movie, right? And Helen Mm -hmm. Mirren. Because of this, she's often the target of the patriarchy when it does crop up, right? right? I mean, and you've pointed it out from people outside of the film itself, right? From people who watch these movies. we, We keep saying that, you know, people might find her as cold. People might find her as a little detached and stuff like that. And I think that that's possible when you put a woman in power, unfortunately, due to the way that the patriarchy is structured, a lot of people will then build those opinions. But you also see it in in the movie a lot. And this honestly comes from a lot of the stuff we discussed that Ben Mm -hmm. did to Abigail in the first and even a little in the second movie, which we touched on a lot in our Ben character analysis patriarchy corner. But for some highlights, we have Ben basically like having a straight out argument with her um, on the lawn during the initial scene with the Declaration of Independence. We see him being not so nice to her. And we've already discussed how we do not like the tone of voice he takes with her. You even brought it up in this episode. 
And even in the second movie, you know, the, the, the scene that really gets me every time is the scene in Buckingham Palace when he's trying to get her to stay in like the makeshift prison that they're in and not come along with him to go find the desk. So I just feel that in the grand scheme of things, like even though the movie does a good job of not painting her in this role that the patriarchy would like to put her in, she does have a tendency to fall victim to it sometimes because she is one of the few targets of the patriarchy. Can I interject here and maybe help us end this particular admittedly depressing corner that you have here in a slightly more optimistic way, may I? Sure. So there are two main women in this franchise, as you pointed out, Abigail and Professor Helen Mirren, AKA Emily, Ben's mom. And I would like to note that the two women in the film are both doctors. Ooh, good point. And no one else that we know well in the film at least is including all of the men you win bravo Yay! i saved national treasure <laughs> bravo aubrey with that i think the patriarchy corner is closed you may exit and let us move on to our final segment Ah, my, my final segment. Here we go. This is our actor and character comparison. So once again, this is the time where we will take a closer look at what we've learned about Abigail Chase, and we will take a little bit of a detour into the life of the actress who plays her, Diane Kruger, and answer the very important question, are Abigail Chase and Diane Kruger the same person? Spoiler (laughs) alert, we decided the answer was yes for Ben and Nick. So this was a really interesting question to investigate for me. And I've got to be honest with you, like a little bit of insider baseball here. I was never planning on doing this for every one of these character analyses. (laughs) It happened because I kind of knew Ben and Nick were the same person. Right. And I had to incorporate it into that episode (laughs) because I needed the world to know. So now it's just a thing that we're doing. And it's been pretty interesting because I feel like it's a way to learn more about these actors that we know far less than we do Nick Cage, right? Mm-hmm. So are Abigail and Diane, since we are on first name basis, oh yeah, are they the same person? Well, from a very base level, we know that Abigail is from Saxony in Germany and Diane Kruger is also from Germany. Turns out she's actually from Lower Saxony, which is a different place. And if you know German geography, this probably makes more sense to you. I'm just telling you what Wikipedia taught me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Interestingly enough, we know that Abigail, of course, is a U.S. citizen. Diane Kruger became an American citizen in 2013, which admittedly would be after the timeline of National Treasure since National Treasure 2 came out in 2007. But Mm. they have that in common, which I like. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Continue. Yes. So just to find some other, you know, niche similarities here, I found it interesting that Diane Kruger's father is a computer specialist, which reminded me a little bit of Riley. Um, And of course, Riley is not her father, but the fact that she has a, this sort of working or close relationship with someone who is, you know, 
a computer scientist specialist of sorts, or in Riley's case, practically a hacker, is, an, is a fun parallel that I wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, something else that I found interesting when reading about Diane Kruger is that she partook in a lot of student exchange programs as a child, which I find to be uh, a nice parallel with Abigail's like intellectual vibe. And Diane Kruger has been quoted as saying that she was unchallenged in school. And mm. so just from that base level, I feel like Abigail Chase and Diane Kruger have some similarities in terms of, say, intellectual curiosity, intellectual capacity, etc. But that's sort of where the similarities end. <laughs> um, Diane Kruger actually had aspirations to be a ballerina. Hmm, and I can see it. Yeah. And it's cool. I, I watched some videos on YouTube where she was like doing photo shoots and like still doing some like ballerina twirls and stuff like that. It was really neat. Um, so she had aspirations to be a ballerina, but her career actually began in modeling and she was actually a really high profile model in Europe. She actually made her film debut just two years prior to National Treasure. So she was fairly unknown in the Hollywood sphere um before joining our beloved movie um so i would just like to say that it seems like national treasure sort of launched her a little bit in terms of the acting of it all just nice. a little bit and much like uh nick cage and ben gates you know we pointed out that the national treasure franchise is is nick cage's highest grossing domestic project which is also true for diane kruger anyway until pig until pig <laughs> well played <laughs> well played you just wait oh just wait um that'll be a fun scream next week probably um i will say that it seems that diane kruger is fearless in a different way than abigail you know we spent a lot of time talking about abigail's fearlessness in terms of you know being able to accomplish her goals and put her own missions in front of you know the you know the the means to the end that kind of discussion um, and her fearlessness really in the film revolved around this historical treasure hunt, or at least history, if you want to say, you know, pre-treasure hunt. Well, it turns out that Diane Kruger is fearless in what I would say is a pretty different way. She's really into like backpacking, for example. Mm. And in one of the interviews I watched, she shared a story about how she went backpacking in China and like literally went knocking on strangers doors and slept Ooh. in their homes mm -mm. yeah i agree that's a hard no for me as well dog um to to butcher the quote of randy jackson from american mm -hmm. idol um so yeah different fearlessness and you know to be completely honest with you we national treasure hunt follow diane kruger on instagram as it turns out she's like the only or one of the only national treasure stars who actually has social media which is very sad um so we do follow her on instagram and i am personally always struck by how different she seems from abigail which since we started this podcast and made this instagram account it has always been very jarring for me um you know there's just lots of model shots which makes a lot of sense now that i mm -hmm. knew she was a model and you know early in her career but regardless she just seems very different than 
who we know um, as Abigail Chase. So whereas Ben equals Nick, I would have to say, Emily, that Abigail does not equal Diane. And for that reason, how I like to end this little segment is, you know, if we ever had the distinct honor of being able to interview Diane Kruger, what is one of the most pressing questions I would want to ask her? And based on this little deep dive into her life compared to Abigail, I would want to know how much of herself she brought to this role. Since, you know, Abigail has so little backstory that we know of, I would presume that that Diane Kruger, the actress, also didn't have a ton of backstory to work with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what backstory we do know does seem to parallel at least Diane's heritage. And so for that reason, I wonder how much of herself she brought into this role and how she personally thinks she's similar to the character that she plays. Oh, okay. Yeah. I like that. Thanks. Let's hope we can get an interviewer at some point. Yeah. So if anyone has any connects, hook us up. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's do this. Um, Yeah. So, Emily, I think that wraps up our character analysis of Abigail Chase. Do you have anything you'd like to add? You know what, Aubrey? I think you have just once again knocked it out of the ballpark in this episode. I have nothing more to say. I am so honored and so touched that you said that. Thank you so much. And you know what? I'm really excited because on our next episode, it will be your time to shine. We have a long-awaited episode that will be assessing the soundtrack, the music in the National Treasure franchise. And as everyone who's listening hopefully knows at this point, you are our own resident musician. I mean, you created our intro and outro music for the podcast. This is a specialty of yours, something that you studied formally in school and you still partake in from a practical sense. So I'm really excited to see what you bring to the table next week, Emily. I am very much looking forward to this. This is going to be my baby more than any other episode that has been my baby has been. So no pressure. Um, But until then, of course, we would like to encourage you to get in touch with us on social media to tell us how you felt about today's character analysis. Emily, tell them where to find us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are also available to listen to on iTunes, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. I would be remiss if I did not tell you about our merch store on TeePublic, which you can find the link in our link tree in our Twitter bio. Go ahead and get your National Treasure Hunt merch. And go ahead and like, rate, review, subscribe, follow us. Do whatever you can on those various platforms, guys. Tell us what you think about this episode. Tell us if you think that Diane Kruger and Abigail Chase are, in fact, the same person or a different person. How you feel about the patriarchy within uh, this, these movies and this character. And just maybe even include how you felt about the movie Pig while we're at it. Yeah, that seems like an imperative you know, based on the conversation today. And we'll, we'll try to share our thoughts as well. So you have that to look forward to. But in any case, we can't wait for you to join us next time when we talk about the soundtrack of National Treasure. And until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hour.